Okay, uh, this is Congress Two Beers In. Uh, I am here with my colleague Mark Harkins, um, and we have special guest Tony Madonna, uh, professor of political science at the University of Georgia. Um, and I've known Tony for a while. Tony was a congressional fellow at the same time I was way back in the day in 2013. Um, so spent a year studying all sorts of procedural stuff that year, um, really got in the weeds on some things. And, and one of the things that Tony is really insightful about is kind of the mechanics of the House and of the Senate. Um, and it's really important because he's done a ton of work on special rules, which is super interesting now, given that they can't seem to pass one in the House of Representatives. Just this past week, uh, the House tried to bring up a defense appropriations bill, which is like normally, I don't know, maybe the most popular bill in Congress when it comes to most things. It's extraordinarily popular. Tons of bipartisan support for defense appropriations year in and year out. But this majority is unwilling to pass it. So I wanted to ask Tony just right off the bat, like, what are we looking at right now? Like, is there like a historical parallel? Is there like anything that you've seen recently that looks like this? Like, how would you describe Kevin McCarthy's situation at the moment? Can I use the word screwed? Is that? Uh, <laughs> I think that's probably, that's probably appropriate. Yeah, I think we're, <laughs> we're PG-13. <laughs> we're getting, no, we're just screw it. Let's go all the way. I had a student pretty like uh, like yesterday. It was just like, is any of this like McCarthy's fault? And I was like, I, I guess that he wanted the job. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> that's, a, that's the thing. It's like, I, I don't know why you would want to take that position right now. It doesn't seem like something that's built for longevity. Right? And, I, and I would say all of it is McCarthy's fault. I mean, the way he decided to take the job, also, right? He sure. set himself up for this situation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I asked him as well. It's one of my favorite things to do in the classroom is like, do you guys know what happens? Like if, uh, you know, they, the speakership gets vacated and, uh, and they just stared at me. I'm like, exactly. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are on the ball here, right? Yeah. It's uh, literally uh, never been done before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess we think about Canon and the revolt and, um, and all that. Um, but, right. uh, you know, it, at least in that that instance, you could pinpoint what it is like, you know, progressive Republicans wanted. Right. Um, and I, you, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Talking, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I, I realize facial expressions don't translate. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I, guess yeah I mean, I don't I don't have a good sense of what House Repo or the Freedom Caucus wants other than to take out another speaker. That seems to be the end goal. It doesn't seem they don't seem to have a another long-term objective after that well they want to spend less money Dang. i mean that that at least on the face is where they are that's just the facial but they can't right so well like, and and it's just not clear what the number of like how much right um right. ken buck's been pretty critical of the far-right caucus uh and he did he was one of the two votes against the military construction act right uh, appropriations and yeah you know, the rest of them all went with that. So it, 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 yeah, where that line is. And like, you basically see McCarthy repeatedly going like, right. like uh, looking confused, like he doesn't know. And yeah, I get where he's coming from. You're dropping the F-bomb in caucus and uh, you're asking for a, a vote on it. Right. Uh, guys, which makes sense. So, yeah. so in, in terms of like the modern speakership, how unusual is this, would you say? Oh, I mean, exceptionally unusual, right? Uh, actually, I just gave my talk uh, to students about like, look, you know, it's not uncommon and we see it every cycle at the speaker, a new speaker has to make a pledge that he's going to do more open amending and, uh, you know, go away from the iron fist that the previous speaker ran on. And, you know, that happens 
despite the fact that the previous speaker also said they were going to do more open rules and, uh, you know, less of an iron fist. And, you know, we, that cycle kind of goes on and on. I've, you know, I was joking with them because I made them look up uh, like the House Rules Resolution in class. And, you know, there's people complaining about, look, you know, the tyranny of the majority. And like, guys, they might just recycle the exact same scripts when somebody like new takes office. Right. Like the majority mm -hmm. just hands the minority the same thing to say. So. Right. Yeah. I've never seen it to this to this point. Right. It's been getting bad. I think that's probably fair. Right? Yeah. Uh, but it's uniquely bad. You can argue that Boehner was pushed out. You can talk about going back way back and talk about Jim Wright basically being forced out. Newt Gingrich being forced out for the book deals. Um, yep. But those, at least with Wright and, and Gingrich, those are being forced out by the other party. Um, yeah. With Boehner, you start to see this new dynamic where you're forced being forced out by your party. A hundred percent. And like, I, I, I'm guessing you guys read it. Uh, I always pitched that uh, Robert Draper book on like the Tea Party Revolution, where it's like Boehner basically trying to explain to these guys, hey, what is the debt ceiling? What is this vote? What does it mean? Right. Because that stuff isn't necessarily intuitive and just how you know frustrated he was. Uh yeah, I thought that thing was was fantastic. Let me let me plug that here, Josh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that's interesting about that is like you know uh, during the 1980s, 1990s, it was really like scandal warfare, right? It was partisan warfare that you know basically came like weaponized scandalization, right? So Jim Wright wrote a book and he wasn't like a super popular speaker among his own Democrats, and so it was like, oh, you wrote a book and you did that. I guess you got to go, right? And they all sort of like, oh, okay. Um, and leaned over with with Newt. It was sort of the same sort of thing. He had become very unpopular with a lot of his stunts. But right now, it's like it seems like right the the kind of Republican coalition has got this group of people who are just sort of antithetical to the goals of the Republican Party. Right, like their election and their reelection odds are contingent on making their colleagues look bad to a degree. Um, and that's that, that's animating a lot of kind of speaker politics right now um, that we see. And I so. I guess what you're saying is like, is there is there any way that you see this changing in the near future or the long term? I mean, like, let's assume Kevin McCarthy leaves the job at some point in the future, whether that's like in October or next at the the next speaker election or whatever it is. Do you see anything changing in the on the Republican side of the aisle? No, uh, and uh, you know, part of it is you you're pretty sympathetic, I think, to a lot of the members. Uh, that they're not getting clear singles signals from the electorate either, right? Uh, mm -hmm. They're they're doing the best they can, but who knows how to interpret that? And you know, and I think like you know, we think about things that have changed. The baseline has certainly changed too, right? This is a, a period where most of these members kind of came up with this sort of like aggressive partisan warfare. And one of my favorite things when I give students bills from like the '80s and '90s is <sighs> partial probably because we're in Georgia, they're all prepared to deal with uh, conservative re Southern Democrats. But they're always like, and without fail, they will like ask me who Bob Michael was, right? <laughs> right. Like, who that like, like what, what that group of Republicans was like, that was not coming in with Gingrich. And it was, that split was pretty pronounced and you could definitely see it. And we don't have that yet. And I don't know that we're gonna see that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which, Maybe, you know, maybe we get a clearer signal from the electorate, but uh, as as is always the case when we're dealing with the electorate, I'm skeptical. <laughs> That's yeah. so true. 
Well, one of the things that's been interesting to watch is it doesn't seem like bills are even getting out of rules, right? Um, it seems like they're trying to tee up a lot of legislation and then it just sort of like just just, just evaporates, right? Just sort of like, oh, it, it doesn't happen. So what's your read on what the, the conservatives affect on the rules committee? Because we, we know Speaker McCarthy had to seat Ralph Norman, Chip Roy, and Thomas Massey on the committee. Three picks that he was probably not very enthusiastic about, to say the least. Um, Chip Roy and uh, 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 Ralph Norman voted against the debt ceiling rule in committee. Um, and do, do you have a sense of like how, like what the, what your read is on how the rules committee is functioning? Because it's, it's one of those places where it's very difficult to understand what's happening just from the outside because everything's so internal to that committee. Yeah, I, I, short answer is I, it's kind of functioning the way I, I sort of anticipated where I think if he feels like he needs to, like for major bills, like the debt ceiling, you know, he's, he's getting some defections, but not necessarily killing it. Uh, and he can get votes right uh, when he needs to on that. What surprised me is again, when you look at that like gas stove bill that got blown up, right? That was a conservative messaging vote, right? Uh, that was a vote that you would think is only being taken because of a, you know, uh, the kind of partisan like, warfare that's coming out of the right, basically. Yeah. And, you know, that was one of the things like when we were working on uh, our current book project that really jumped out at us is just the almost exponential increase we've seen in these types of votes on bills that if you look at the percentage of roll calls that uh, are taken on bills that become public law, right, uh, it's plummeted. And it was something like 13 percent for the last uh, Congress in our data set from oh. You know, something like 60, 70 percent. And now, like, you're not even getting some sort of agreement on that. Right. Um, and yeah, it seems odd because it seems like historically what would happen here is you'd see the speaker try and form a coalition in the middle. But that primary constituency is still apparently terrifying. Right. So. When you're talking about that, uh, that, because that's an interesting stat, like, I mean, bills that eventually become law, roll call votes is is diminishing, right? So Mm -hmm. do you see that as a function of like centralization? Do you see it as a function of like just omnibus legislating? Like, what do you think are the the big factors behind that? Uh, I mean, I think you hit two of them, omnibus legislating, increased centralization. uh, And then I do think like one of the things I've often think like uh, from a political science standpoint, we don't get a good feel for uh, is the impact of increased communications, right? If you look at like what was happening in the 40s, 50s, 60s, it makes sense that you're going to get some surprises, right? Uh, now everybody's kind of in constant contact. They know, right, where everybody's coming from, what those votes are, are going to be. They know what types of votes are going to help the party look a lot more unified, right? And so, you know, those types of requests are a little bit more common, understandable, and you're going to get a lot more you know, hey, we're all unified on on this this item, right? That basically asking for that kind of vote. So basically, uh, you're saying, like, just to clarify, like, you can you can kind of feel or understand party unity a little bit better given the communication internally, right? So before you're mm-hmm. heading out to a vote, is that what you're saying? Yeah, beforehand, you'd have to like you know talk to somebody who would be talking to like all the chairs as opposed to I always tell my students they're on the same maps you guys are on, right? For the most part, mm-hmm. in terms of like like chatting, knowing where everybody's at, travel has improved. So people are in the area and they can, you know, get a feel for where everybody's going to stand on something. Uh, I also don't, uh, you know, I, I will often talk to the students about this too. 
there's been this sort of increased pressure, I guess, on leaders that they need to protect the party's brand. And for some reason, they believe that the party's brand also involves success, which is not something I think in political science we've talked about. Right? We always go back to Mayhew, right? Voters will punish you for being on the wrong side of the issue, uh, not on the losing side of the issue. But leadership does not like to lose. And uh, it's, you know, something McCarthy said when he took office and something previous speakers have said is, look, like we're going to have to bite the bullet and lose a lot more. Right, which is what we saw with Ryan when he was going towards open rules twice, uh, but (laughs) (laughs) until he lost, right? For some reason, right, that they feel like that's going to come back and bite them electorally. And I, for the life of me, don't know why. Uh, we just don't have evidence that suggests it does, right? So, like, legislative success is not going to like come back and say, Oh, you get 20 more votes or 20 more seats now in the house because of all the bills you passed. Could some of it be that because of the communication you're talking about? that there is so much more that leaves Washington and goes out to the hinterlands and the hinterlands are communicating back. And so they don't want to lose and they see a loss as such a black eye to them personally. And then they communicate that back to the members at large. And then the members then do that back to leadership. Is that a possible feedback loop? Yeah, I would, I would think so. Uh, And we've, uh, yeah, I would think so. We have had some research that shows that generally members tend to think that they're districts are way more conservative than they are and that's consistent across democrat and republican uh uh members right so, and uh, so democrats and, think their districts are also more conservative than they are yeah which i think is just a factor of like they're corresponding to who is loudest right and mm-hmm. that might be like where you're getting that feedback and whenever we're doing bills from the 70s with our like congress project legislative history stuff it always always cracks me up but Anytime you're dealing with an environmental bill in that era, you see senators will almost always say this, where they're complaining about Ralph Nader and the all-powerful environmental lobby or consumer interest group, right? Which apparently they were legitimately, that was who was the high demand, and they were worried about those guys in that yeah. period. And it's and it shifted, I, I suppose, right? So yeah. yeah, Mark, I think that's probably on the nose. That was one of the things that was really the, the Nader thing. If we could just like die, just take a little di- divergence here for a second. Yeah. The Nader thing was really interesting because he was like terrifying to members like the 1960s until and then he got to the 1970s and he took on like congressional reform. And then mm-hmm. it just seemed like everything sort of just went away. Right? <laughs> like Ralph Nader just like faded into the background, like Homer Simpson disappearing into a bush. I don't know what happened with that particular uh, yeah, he- a report, he, but you can take solace in knowing that he is not the first or last person that's going to die on the hill of legislative reform, right? That is, <laughs> right. seems like a real, and yeah, I'm actually writing a piece right now um, about the 1946 uh, Legislative Reorganization Act, awesome. and I was uh, I was just going back and remembering that like uh, Robert LaFollette lost free election, and Mike right. Roney, who is the other author, like got a lot of heat <laughs> in his in his election. He ended up surviving, but not by a lot. I, we spent some time talking too about LaFollette uh, losing that primary to McCarthy, right? And just the right. idea that the two of them were in the same party at the same time, uh, which I always find fascinating. I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it is true. Although LaFollette changed his, his uh, party identification. This is Rob LaFollette Jr., so not like the, the big LaFollette, if you will. If you will. Um, he changed. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Was it, was it him too, Josh, that like, committed suicide largely? Out of depression from that primary loss, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Shortly after, I don't remember. Uh, yeah, I think that might be the case. But uh, oh. superhero there. Mm. He's yeah. a, anyway. He was. A, he's an interesting politician. He was progressive for a really long time. Very nationalist. So kind of McCarthy in in many ways. 
In yep. any event, <laughs> getting back uh, to yeah, nationalists <laughs> are not confused with progressives today. <laughs> Correct. Oh. <laughs> and it's always a challenge for my students. If I teach in like an American political history class, they'll see that P for like Republicans in the 20s and they'll think like contemporary progressivism. And you have to explain to them like, oh, <laughs> drastically different deal, guys. Uh, yeah. Right. right. Um, so getting back to politics within the last decade or two. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so one of the things that I've been uh, trying to sort of parse out is how, do you see the Senate sort of taking a larger role now? Like how do you like so much attention has been on Republicans in the House and we sort of forget that like Democrats control the other two chambers. I, I mean, we're approaching a shutdown. What What is your basic, I don't know, your, your take on what's happening in the next two or three weeks? The thing I was uh, we were talking about that I think is fascinating, right, is uh, one of my stock bits when I'm teaching is I always tell people whenever I have a member of Congress come talk to my class. Despite the fact that everybody gets this impression of uh, high levels of partisan polarization, inevitably that member is going to complain in order about number one, the other chamber, number two, his own party's leadership, and then number three, maybe the other party. Uh, and I'll always tell students, like, this is a thing that doesn't get enough attention is this inter-branch conflict. Last two weeks, like, uh, within the Republican Party, I, I can't remember in my lifetime seeing more conflict between Senate and House Republicans, right, uh, in the press. Uh, and that, I think, is kind of fascinating. I, I would not be surprised to see the Senate take the lead and Schumer basically punt it, right, uh, and kind of try and make it like, hey, this is right. you guys' internal squabble. Uh, historically, if that happened, like, uh, Senate minority Republicans would kind of tell them to go to hell, but now I'm not hundred percent certain that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, is that, I mean, is that the read you're getting on this too? I you mean, like it's... basically, I think it's, uh, it, I think Senate Republicans are mad at house Republicans for looking the way they do. Right? <laughs> that's like just generally speaking, um, they don't want to shut down. And then like house Republicans are like, you know, about to go to fisticuffs evidently. Well, I would uh, Senator Tuberville from Alabama over his military holds. Um, it's, they seem like, two extremely different conferences right now. Um, and what's your, what, what is the sense of that? I mean, obviously the Senate, they're representing statewide constituencies. They're going to be more moderate, but like, what is, uh, what is happening right now? It seems like they're very, very not on the same page more so than usual. Yeah. And, and I was thinking about this and I was actually talking to Michael a bit earlier. Like it, it's tough to get too much of a read on it just because it doesn't seem like, like the house has a clear negotiating position. Right. right? Uh, and so much of that, I think stems from the size of that majority, right? Uh, it only takes a handful. When we talk about like, you know, the far right is doing this. Oftentimes the far right could just be seven people and that's still going to blow it up. Right. Uh, and, you know, without seeing that conflict on the floor, it, it, it's tough as an analyst to get too much uh, into the weeds on that. So um, and I think, yeah. No, go ahead. So oftentimes when your party is out of power in the White House and you're the leader of one of the houses, you're seen as the counterbalance, right? We think about Trump Pelosi. Yes, Schumer was there too. But when you think about it, it's Trump Pelosi. And so you would think about right now, it should be Biden McCarthy. And for the debt limit vote, it was. But in general, I think for the Senate and for McConnell, he must be just like, this is the guy. And I think a lot of this really goes around to the fact that McCarthy is a rookie. I mean, this is his first time in leadership. It's his second attempt. The first time they were like, yeah, not so much. Yeah. I, mean, I think part of McCarthy's problems is he can't count votes. Mm. Um, and, and if you can't count votes, it's hard to be a leader. 
And, and I think that that's part of that dynamic you're seeing play out. I don't know if that makes sense or not. No, no, it does. And, you know, and I would say in his defense, like he has so small a margin of error with that, you know, number, right. If you miss two, right. Uh, you're probably sinking yourself. If like two members are like, yeah, you know, I'm not sure going in. Yeah. They're, uh, they're actually three members that are out right now um, for various reasons. I think one two, Democrat. Yeah, yeah. Two are, two are out for babies. <laughs> and then one one sick or something. So, so yeah, one, it's like and one just retired today, right? It's yeah, literally, it's literally, literally two right at the, at the moment. Yeah. So it's uh, I do not envy him for taking like again. He probably I don't know why he wanted that job so badly, but uh, don't. <laughs> Which raises him. the question: Then why are we doing this, right? So yeah. like, like I mean, wh- why are we continuing to to like keep the charade? One of the things that, that that's been going on right now is that. People are so afraid of the motion to vacate. Like, here's the thing about the motion to vacate. It's not going to pass, right? He, the, the chair will not be vacated because Democrats are not going to be on board with that's right. messing around with Republican leadership stuff, right? It's just not their thing. And so why M- Mr. McCarthy is uh, delaying this vote, this sort of like this re- revolt that will happen because <laughs> he's been put in a position by conservatives that no matter what he does to like, whether that's reopening the government or funding it at all at any level. I mean, it seems like no matter what that vote's coming, right? The motion to vacate is going to show up on the house floor at some point in time. So I've been trying to figure out like, why not just let it come? Why are we going to such elaborate lengths to sort of put it off and and, and, and push it down the road. Why delay it at this point in time? Um, and I can't figure out exactly why. I've come up with three plausible things, and I don't know if this is right or not. Curious, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. all right, so the three pl- plausible things. One, um, he wants to push off the revolt because uh, it basically I don't want to make the House Freedom Caucus even more hostile than they already are, right? That's one possible thing. Two, he doesn't want Democrats to get leverage over him for saving him on a motion to vacate and like whatever kind of stipulations that are. I don't know how I feel about that one because I think the, the like the stipulations are basically just fund the government at the, the levels we already passed. Right. Which is not like that's not a huge right. price to pay for him, for McCarthy. I mean, it is politically. But anyway, and then three is he just wants to in, extend his time in the chair um, and possibly to another term, which sort of hinges on a huge electoral success in 2024 that makes the Freedom Caucus votes irrelevant. Um, and I'm not sure how well that plays, but that's that's sort of that's all I can come up with, really. It's like, why are we why are we why not just put a bill on the floor and not have to go through all this absurd sort of show of a shutdown? Um, why play along? Because, I mean, there there is a majority to just open the government. Well, in the and, House. and Tony, as you said, I think McCarthy used an expletive in the caucus and basically said, come after me. And I'm wondering if that's part of it, too. If you're going to kill the king, you better kill the king. And these guys might realize they can't kill the (laughs) king yet. And so the threat is better. I mean, for the motion to come to the floor, somebody actually has to offer it. Yeah. And I worry, too. Right. I I think like both. like I think all three of those are plausible, Josh. And I think, yeah, like uh, they might a little bit be worried about offering it and not having it i'm also interested just because the prospect of democratic support like suggests that you might get a lot more let's vacate the chair votes than you otherwise would right from now we're in a who can be more conservative than thou type situation and 
uh, he's worried that, whoa, you know, I might be looking at way more votes than I would have thought just because they know this thing isn't going to pass. Um, but yeah, it's, it sounds like, you know, when you're yelling, come at me, bro, in caucus that, uh, maybe you are now ready and we'll see. Uh, I, it, it could very well also be a situation where he doesn't know specifics and what the Democrats want for the bill he wants to put on the floor. Um, yeah, which I, you know, I think you're right. It's probably just going to be previous levels, but who knows? Yeah, it, it just, it, it seems interesting. I mean, I, uh, there were, there were a couple of interesting pieces that talked about how, you know, this is really a play for Kevin McCarthy to sort of save his job or, or extend it for a, a longer period of time. And, you know, you have to wonder, like, doesn't he know it's like a short term gig anyway? <laughs> like, this is, this is not something that like speakers have been able to like hold on to for like very long, you know? Well, Plus, he's been holding this job now, and it seems miserable. I don't know why right. he would want to. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. He, he, his, he, his health seems to be declining faster than Biden's. Uh, yes. Yeah. If you look at photos from two years ago, uh, mm-hmm. McCarthy looked like the star before. Now he's looking a little a little worn. Well, I'd be worn. I mean, you'll probably not get much sleep. Yeah. And you guys are in a better position to know this, but I was, I was telling the, my undergraduates, I a lot of times when you get this kind of conflict that's playing off in the media that is ostensibly behind the scenes, uh, we'll look at it and say, you know, it's probably not that bad, right? They're trying to sell, right? Get clicks, all that. But this feels like it is much worse behind the scenes. And uh, right. I think that's right. How we surviving? Who knows? Yeah. yeah there, I read a piece today that suggested <clears throat> that Matt, Matt Gates' interest in uh, – pursuing a motion to vacate was because he had an ethics complaint that McCarthy wanted yeah. to intervene on, which is sort of like, and that McCarthy was the one that let the leak that out to the press. And it's like, Oh, I guess gloves are coming off now. This is <laughs> getting, this is getting a lot more, a lot more bare knuckled um, as we get closer and closer to the deadline. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So I have no idea how to read it. So in the past, we've sometimes had these deadlocks and we've had things. And I think Josh was trying to, to get towards this before. Have have former speakers used the rules in interesting ways to get around things? Um, and, and what are some of the ones that 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 you can talk to and, and maybe could play a part today? Yeah. So one of my favorite examples, when we think about the revolt against Canada, I don't think this gets enough attention. Uh is majority suspension, like blows my mind every time I look back and I look at that 60th Congress that they kept like they altered the rules. John Sharp Williams, the minority leader, uh, he's forcing roll calls on everything. He's delaying business. He's generally being himself. Uh, Republicans are getting annoyed at this. uh, And as a result, they changed the rules to allow for suspension uh, votes to come up whenever uh, and for suspension to be approved by a simple majority. Uh, and like you look at that and you're like, yeah, I can kind of see how that would lead to, uh, you know, substantive reform and uh, making the speaker a lot more uncomfortable. Right. I, I as soon as you take it. away like members ability to amend appropriations bills, for yeah. example, like, yeah, they're going to get ticked off. Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, a hundred percent. But again, like it's, it still kind of amazes me that it, you look back at those earlier requests from the Freedom Caucus that they were basically not asking for more open rules. They just wanted to win more, right? Uh, which is understandable, but I don't know how you get to that unless you're, I mean, I just flat out don't know how you get to that, right? You're basically asking for 
we want more, you know, we're okay with the closed rules or the structured rules or however you want to set it up as long as, you know, we're getting our stuff. Uh, and I, I don't know how you can guarantee that and still get, you know, something to the floor and through. And, and I would say that that's similar to what Tuberville's doing. Yeah. Tuberville's trying to, to get a win on an item where he can't legislatively by totally mucking up a system. And I think it plays that same playbook. And it's yeah. a dangerous precedent, especially if Biden goes along with it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested that you haven't, in the fact that you haven't seen Senate leadership start trying to force more votes and more action on the floor and just trying to eat that up. Um, it seems like an area where, where you could, uh, and I, I, I don't get the impression that Senate Republicans would have much of a trouble problem with that. So, uh, I kind of, uh, expect to see Schumer move on that, but who knows? Right. So, so when you say that, do you mean like Chuck Schumer walking down and basically making random unanimous consent requests to like approve nominees or to uh, have votes yeah. on a cluster of nominees or something along those lines without this is this is sort of like, you know, this gets a little bit into like the, the backroom deals in the incident, but like you don't just walk up onto the Senate floor and make unanimous consent requests normally like it's kind of it's spread around all 100 offices hear about it. They sort of understand what's going to happen. But when when senators get really upset, they start doing this like, hey, we're just going to go down and, and make them randomly. And if you want to stop us, you need to be on the floor to do that. hundred percent. Is that what you're requesting? You're, you're talking about? Yeah, we've seen a, a few uh, examples of that. We've also seen instances where, you know, you make a motion to proceed, you force uh, actually somebody to get there and actually talk about it. They ultimately are going to win, but it gives you that option, right? Uh, uh, yeah, the forced UCs, like 111th Congress, we saw a few of those. With uh, the with, uh, Bunning, right? Senator Bunning? Yeah. With Bunning, and there was also a period where you could tell Republicans were not thrilled that Coburn was objecting to... You know, uh, what was it? Uh, yeah, it was a drug bug 9 11 bill. Oh, the Haida? Was it the Haida? Yeah. yeah, what's that? The Haida, the high intensity drug. Look at that, yeah, pulling that yeah. out. <laughs> Everybody totally knows that one, Mark. Right? It's totally, it's totally something people talk about still. <laughs> well, one of the things that was interesting with Bunning is like they were trying to extend unemployment benefits in 2009. 2010 mm -hmm. like and they they kept doing this we're in the middle of the recession they're extending extending unemployment extending the, the eligibility for it but then senator bunning said i will object to that and they were like well what do you want and he wouldn't tell them so they're like after a while they're like well we're just going to go down there and make requests and so he sat there for three days and just objected to every request that they made until they figured something out and he stood down but yeah well Hall of Fame picture, though. Let's 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 think about that. Hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, have a, I have a big picture of him with the because I'm a Tigers fan uh, in his Tigers thing in the uh, garage that I've had for a while. But uh, yeah. well, that's got to come into the office. That's obviously a dual purpose for you as a congressional scholar, right? Tigers and fan and senator from Kentucky. full, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's these sports guys who come to the Senate that are the problem, right? Oh, Tuberville, right? right? I mean, you would think Tuberville, like. Yeah. What was his record in the Mac? It was uh, not as good as you would like, at least at least for that particular conference, too. <laughs> well, we want to I want to talk a little bit about shutdowns. Um, what do you, what do you think we're looking at? Do you think we're going to go to a shutdown or, or not? Uh, I am flabbergasted that they got through the debt ceiling without 
Agreed. Like that was the, you know, I'm cynical about this consistently. Uh, and so it's true that I've been predicting like eventually we're going to blow past that, but I was amazed that they managed to, to make it through that. I, at the time could not see how they'd get through the shutdown without one. Right. Uh, and yeah, as much as I love making fun of members of Congress as you know, like tell this to students and, and being cynical and all that, like part of it is you got to see what the public is going to react to. Right. Uh, if it sounds like after a couple of weeks, the public is like, Hey, you know, these guys are right. Then, you know, that's where you're getting that leverage. So I, I do think we're, we're going to head towards one. Um, and I hopefully it's not going to be a long one, but who knows? I've been dead wrong in the past as a will often tell students. <laughs> and, and when you go back to the electorate, the electorate doesn't seem to penalize the purveyors or the, the, the presumed purveyors of the shutdown, right? In 2020, I don't think the Republicans did particularly badly. They didn't win the White House, but I'm not sure that that was because of the shutdown. But they did no. fine in the congressional races, in the House at least. And more or less the same is true. They lost a few seats in uh, 96 after the 95 shutdown. But but after, I believe after the shutdown in 2013, then 2014, they did pretty well. They won the Senate, uh, the Republicans did. And so, yeah, it, this is another one of those ones where you talked about the electorate when it comes down to the electorate and getting mixed messages. The electorate mm -hmm. doesn't really care about shutdowns in odd numbered years. Nope, it's all kind of inside baseball uh, to them. And uh, yeah, I think basically when we say the electorate, what we mean is media spin on like public opinion polls, I guess. Uh, yeah, uh, it, uh, yeah, no, I, that's exactly on the nose. Uh, I lead off most of my classes by telling students like, hey, I have two aggressive biases. Number one is I hate elections. Uh, <laughs> students often ask me, how can you best uh, improve uh uh, policy making. Well, you can find the nearest campaign consultant and punch him as hard as you can. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, I, in my experience, members are always hyper and oversensitive to that stuff, and I think that's what they're looking for in this case, even though they absolutely shouldn't be. Right. Right. So, one of the things that's interesting, that at least that I found, is like you, typically when you see this type of activity, people with interest in protecting their party's brand would be the one sort of saying like, let's pump the brakes. And you see people doing that. You have like Mike Simpson from Idaho. He's like, I don't know why we're doing this. Like nobody knows why we're doing this. And you got a couple other members saying that sort of thing. Um, Senate Republicans too, yeah. Right, yeah, Senate Republicans as well. Um, but it doesn't seem to really affect many other people. Now, it, 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 at least the people that are in charge of the shutdown, for example. Um, yeah. So when you have this sort of disjuncture Right. What how how do you make sense of this? Right. I mean, this doesn't look good for the party. Um, you would think that uh, in a in a situation where party label matters more to their elections than anything else at this point in time, that they would care a lot about that. Like, how do you square that? I, I don't quite understand that that mix. Yeah, I mean, the, at least when we're, we talk about it, like our stock answer is. The ideas we haven't really seen, and uh, Mark was kind of getting at this, the general public punished the party's brand, right? Uh, the bigger worry, I think, for a lot of folks is what could happen in a primary or how is this going to affect my personal brand if I'm trying to move up to another seat or, you know, get a talk show or whatever it is members are going to try and do, right? Uh, uh, and, you know, we've been kind of hinting at this. The scariest element of this is I, I have no feel for how this ends, Right. Uh, the idea of like slowing down Congress and the 
1910s. So, you know, John Sharp Williams could get a podcast uh, or, (laughs) you know, a TV uh, deal or something like that. Like there's, there's just no, nothing comparable for me to like fall back on. Let's be real. A John Sharp Williams podcast (laughs) would be epic. (laughs) I I would like, I would love it. Uh, (laughs) Whenever we're doing like historical and I'm having the students go through the record, I always bring this story up because there was a part in the record and I don't know where it is now. He was the Senate majority uh, minority leader and the record just reads he's debating. And then like brackets, uh, like (sighs) applause or something. Right. And then he's (laughs) off the floor. And then we were looking at his autobiography. Apparently, this happened on occasion where he got so drunk, he basically stopped speaking mid-sentence. <laughs> right? And they had to, like, haul him out of there. Like, I'm watching the crap out of that podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little different than Mitch McConnell's situation, I guess. Yes. Um, <laughs> McConnell, probably not booze in, in April. Not booze. No. <laughs> no, he's from Kentucky. Right. That's interesting because that... Tony, that brings up an interesting concept I hadn't thought about before. People who argue in favor of term limits are like, I don't want these people here forever. Could you imagine how much worse this would be if people knew they had to leave office and what they would be trying to do to be able to prostitute themselves for their next job? Oh yeah. My and that's always a point. Like when you get, and I was very much the same way. I'm 18 years old. I'm going to college. The first thing I'm thinking is we need term limits. That's going to fix everything. Right. <laughs> And to the extent like the legislative politics uh, in political science has a climate change type, like we are sure of this, right? It is the problematic impact of term limits, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Things people never think about is, you know, what does this do to the aggregate wealth of the chambers too, right? Is who can can afford to quit mid-career in their like mid-30s, take eight years serving Congress and then go back to their job? unless you're already a millionaire and like we've, you know, not that we don't have enough of those already. Um, So, yeah, I, I, you know, the amount of sort of back and forth you get in the state legislatures uh, with going to interest groups, coming back and all that, uh, it's kind of overwhelming. And yeah, at least on its own, it feels like uh, that can't possibly be the solution. Right. Uh, yeah. One of the things that's interesting about this particular dynamic is it seems like age is becoming more and more publicly salient than it has in recent mm-hmm. Congresses. Agreed. Like, I mean, I mean, obviously we're having some like very high level sort of instances to point to, whether it's Thad Cochran or the Senate Minority mm-hmm. Leader currently, or Diane Feinstein or whatnot. But it seems to be more and more a thing, and that we haven't seen this in like several decades, really. I mean, like it was a huge thing in the 1960s and 70s. They're like, look at all the old people on top of committees, right? And they were mm-hmm. yelling about it, like at the top of their lungs. And to be fair, like you know, most of the committees were chaired by people who were you know 70 or older, right? Um, in many cases, and in some cases, you have people like 86 and 87 chairing, like you know, the Armed Services Committee, Ways and Means, like really important committees. But that sort of has gone away, and now it seems like we're back into another sort of, you know, very very elderly Congress. Does that seem? Is that? Do you have any like sense like that we're getting? We've gotten older within the last four or five years. That's like significant change. You know, older definitely seems to be the case. Uh, but one of the things that because I was looking at this, thinking about it uh, as well recently, that uh, amazes me is that the number of, like average number of terms members are serving is basically been steady since 19, mid-1950s. Interesting. Right? Uh, and yeah, this certainly seems like with Feinstein and uh, McConnell that this, you know, 
that there's more of a concern today, but you look back at like Carter Glass and Carl Munt and a lot of like those prominent examples of members that were basically MIA for years, right? Uh, that did exist. Um, you know, the other thing I think has changed is just this expectation that members will be there all the time. They're going to have 100% voting records. They're going to be participating and you're going to see them all the time, right? Because, you know, historically that wasn't always the case. Right. Members would pair, they'd miss votes all the time. They'd kind of be in and out of the chamber. And now like you just don't have that luxury. Right. Interesting. I mean, that was the, the Bill Natcher uh, situation. Bill Natcher was a representative for Kentucky. He's cast the most consecutive votes ever of anybody. And I remember what he would do is every orientation when the new members were elected, he would say, don't carry this burden. Miss yeah. a vote. Miss a vote early. Try to miss a vote every Congress. because this, And I remember Nasher cast his last vote from a stretcher. I mean, it was insane yeah. in what, 1993, I want to say. Um, but that was, yeah. So you're right. I mean, I think people expect this because we expect you to come and do your job. Well, mm -hmm. you were working for not go Washington. Yeah. yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. People complain about the work weeks too. <laughs> it's like, yeah. like, Oh, you're only doing three days. It's like, well, they are flying a lot. <laughs> yeah, like, and they do do just a touch back home. Right. Yeah. I, I was still, again, like my undergrads that are interested in working. I'm like, guys, like raise your hand if you think you want to run for office. Right. And if they raise their hand, I'm like, the first thing you need to do is go look at the, office schedulers, like uh, what that looks like for the member, right? That day-to-day -day is miserable, right? And despite the fact that we always get this, like, hey, it's partisan politics, these are big issues, right? For me, the story I always come back to is you don't realize how much of this is kind of mundane and not that exciting until you actually work and right. you're inundated with phone calls. First week I was working in the Michigan State Senate, it was about the hunting of morning doves. Oh, yeah, that's big. Yeah, like it was enormous and I, I did not get it. And like I under I was sympathetic to the member who I'm guessing didn't have a position on that issue and had to go talk to a bunch of groups about it. And I got to let them know where you stand. Right. Yeah. Right. There's a, a member that speaks uh, is spoken on our programs a bunch. It's a good friend of ours, but he um he calls them anti perks. <laughs> it's sort of like everybody thinks that like being a member is like this glamorous experience and like they got all these cool things. He's like, I can think of three perks and I can think of a whole lot of anti-perks, right? The schedule and the meetings that you have to do are among them. <laughs> Especially if you're in a district where you're concerned about either losing in a primary or in the general. Now more and more, obviously, it's in the primary where you've got to make those connections with people. Uh, yeah, and yeah, and kind of like uh yeah, I, I the perks thing, it always blows my mind how much people think like members have these great benefits and they're always voting to give themselves these great benefits. Right. Yeah. And I always tell students about like I, when I first moved to Georgia, it was uh uh there was an well, no, it was 2010, there was an open seat for the Senate and Purdue was in a runoff with Jack Kingston, right? Long time House Appropriations. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. And I was sitting at home and I was watching this attack ad where Kingston's in all black and white. And like this voice comes on, he's like, Jack Kingston voted 11 times to raise his own pay. And now those ads are super common. But at the time, I remember just thinking, oh, this is awesome. Not for Kingston or for democracy or anything like that, but for my career, because there's no way at all he would have voted to raise his own pay. Members are not idiots. Yeah. Sure enough, those were all PQ votes. Uh, and uh, Previous question votes. On rules. On rules. Yeah, like this is, again, bad unless 
you happen to study historic uh, U.S. Right. congressional right. procedure, in which case, phenomenal news, right? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like the idea that they're going to vote for their own benefits, like, just seems crazy to me. And everybody seems to buy that. Yeah. I, I don't get it. When's the last time they had a pay raise? Last pay raise was 2008, I believe. Since 2009, since the recession, every... It's, it's statutorily in in the books that they are supposed to get a cost of living raise unless they do something to stop it. And Steny Hoyer, bless his heart, is the one who figured out how to stop it when he was the, the chair of the Treasury Postal Appropriations Subcommittee. And so now in an appropriations bill, it's like section six. Every time there's an omnibus, you'll see, we do not take a pay raise essentially. But I mean, that's that's what it plays out to be. And they've done it since 2009. Yeah, uh, um, there you have it. It is crazy. And uh, again, we're surprised when half the chamber is filled with millionaires. Right. That's right. That's right. Because they're not getting paid all that well. And and sometimes we think these are idiots. Well, it's not like you're buying the best and the brightest here. I mean, the best and the brightest don't want to come do this, right. not to listen to you complain. Well, that's, you know, this is something that's gone on, on over and over again. Again, going back to 1946, when they passed that bill, the last mm-hmm. time that they had given themselves a pay raise or anything like that was 1930. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like they, they passed the bill and they put that into the legislation on the premise that like, we need the best people possible to be in the chamber. And if we don't pay them, then we're not going to get that. So they have uh, a pension and like staff stipend and all this other stuff. But that's like that. I mean, it's a real concern, right? Right. Yeah. Gosh, I'm guessing you found it, but if you haven't like read all of it yet, Dirksen's speech in favor of like uh, like staff and member pays is he uses a phrase in it and I forgot like what the context of the paper, but he he talks about like the concern for everybody is that, uh, you know, we're going to get uh, hammered back home. But then he gives a really nice analogy to how much money Congress has increased the executive branches like staffing budgets. And uh, I, I don't remember why he used the phrase dodging dead cats. But I now have a paper that is titled Dodging Dead Cats with uh, Ian Hostrander. It's basically just talking about his speech. It's a marvelous speech. That sounds great. I'm going to have to go look that up. Yeah. I, I assume he uh, he was probably not sober for that speech either. Maybe. Was that? Oh, yeah. I, I, I highly doubt it. I was looking. I do have his album here. <laughs> well, I mean, this is Congress two beers in, and Josh and I are drinking a joint resolution, the DC Prow. So we oh. decided to do this. But I remember I was on the Hill because I'm an old fart when Congress raised its pay, got rid of honorarium. Remember mm. old honorarium where they used to be able to get paid like twenty five thousand dollars a year, but in speeches, if they get twenty five hundred dollars a pop, they could go and get paid this honorarium. And when they decided to get rid of honorarium, they just lumped it into the base pay. But I think it's fair to say that that was one of the, the I mean, there's a lot of things going on, but that that accelerated the Democrats loss of the majority in 94. Um, that the House banking scandal, a couple of other things. But you're right. I mean, and the problem was until two or three years ago, staff pay also was limited since 2009. And so in the same way that Dirksen was concerned about it, I'm concerned about it today. Yeah, no, and I think, like, understandably, uh, it, I always tell, like, you know, I, I'll say this often, my students have about a one and a half year, maybe two year burnout rate on the Hill, yeah. uh, especially, you know, really good students. And, you know, it, it's it's a shame given how important that job is. Um, you know, the flip side, and I always struggle with this, is I, 
it doesn't solve the other problem of members hiring primarily campaign staff, right? And right. media staff too. And, you know, I, what you do to fix that, I, I just don't have a feel for it. Yeah. Um, maybe bulking more resources to committee staff, I think is usually a good idea, but right. yeah. One of the things that I, I always go back to this and, and it's, you know, I remember staff don't, they weren't there for the pay in the first place. Right. That's <laughs> um, it's it's never been about the pay. The pay is important. We need to keep them. We need to make it a decent working environment for them. We need to you know give them the things, the resources that they need. But it's never been about that. They could always make money doing something else, right? Like whether that's lobbying or working in a trade association, whatever it might be. There's there money. There was better money elsewhere. Um, one of the things that's really striking to me is like the reason we're struggling to have staff. It's like members and committees just aren't as influential and aren't as important anymore. Like you don't have the power that you had before, right? You weren't deciding legislative changes. You weren't moving, you're not moving bills through the chambers anymore. You're not integral to negotiations in the way that they used to be integral into the negotiations. And until that changes, I don't think like, you, you know, we can do all the pay benefits and all this other stuff that we can imagine, but it's until you fundamentally change the way that place works, I don't think staff are going to going to have any incentive to stay long-term because they're, they're not wielding a whole lot. Yeah, no. And I, I'll admit, I kind of go back and forth on that question. Cause I think that is like the dominant question in terms of like legislative reform or government reform now is, you know, how much do we try and actually push back for Congress to take more authority and decentralized kind of policymaking and all that versus how much do you just say, hey, you know, it's we're we're moving past, you know, the, the legislative uh deliberation and and all that. And let's kind of put our chips into presidential dominance and executive branch dominance, which disappoints me as something that uh, you know researches in this area and works in that area. But yeah. Yeah, if you look at the Brookings, I agree. short answer. Yeah, right. If you if you look at the Brookings data on on congressional staffing, what you'll see is ninety four. We took a big hit with mm. staff uh, for committees, yeah. both in the House and the Senate. That really kind of stabilized and hasn't moved up much. Uh, but the one w place where staff has increased is what Josh just alluded to. Mm -hmm. It's leadership staff. Mm -hmm. Leadership staff has ballooned, whereas all other kinds of staff has really decreased and even for a couple of years back in the mid knots, I think members of Congress spent more resources on their district staffs than their DC staffs. Because yeah, no, that's no. where they were getting reelected from. Uh, uh, yeah, that's a hundred percent. The uh, this makes me think back to the whole like general public point. Uh, one of the one of the things I was always like I've done, and I had no idea why, like what we were going to do with this. Uh, but John Hibbing's 1992 Congress as a Public Enemy, it's a phenomenal book, right? Why do people dislike Congress? It had this data in it that showed like one of the things they hated is, I forgot the exact numbers, but 75% of the general public thought members had too many staffers, 90% mm. uh, supported cuts to staff, and 90% of the general public thought members had half as many staffers as they actually had. Uh, and that poll just jumped out at me. Uh, and then like 30 years later, we ended up putting those questions back in the CCES after basically just straight cuts to staff, right, uh, or at least a decline and stagnation of staff resources and got the exact same numbers. Like, it, wow, just how little the public paid attention to any of that, wow. right, which makes a ton of sense. It's all inside baseball. Yeah. Right? But, 
you know, I think if you're a member, like you just can't listen to that, despite the fact that they keep wanting to listen to that. Right. Um, right. We want we want you to like us. Like, please do that. Like, we'll do what you want. And then they do it. And it's like nobody can. <laughs> Although uh, I, some of the modernization stuff that's been occurring most recently has been good. And I think I happened to be at an award ceremony this morning where uh, you had uh, Derek Kilmer was there. Um, and talking about some of this stuff and that that's you know this is Derek a guy Kilmer being the chair of the former select committee on congressional monitoring. right and now the vice chair or whatever the ranking member they um, still have the committee they, they have a subcommittee now wow. on on house administration and the republican chair of that subcommittee was the other awardee for modernization and they were up there being bipartisan and and talking about how important this is and you know you're right this doesn't get you necessarily reelected but it doesn't get you unelected that's 100% it it's like people like again they think uh, so much of this stuff matters when you know it, it probably doesn't uh, to quote Everett Dirksen you we don't need to worry about dodging dead cats all the time <laughs> again i don't know what he meant but uh what was in line with that right. uh, i mean how many how many people listening to our podcast know that the house raised their members representational account 25% three years ago. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. And if you're worried about the attack ad, they're going to put that attack ad out regardless of what <laughs> happened. They're going to say you voted to raise your own pay, even if you're right. voting with all the other members in your party on a right. previous question motion, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I'd... Yeah. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate having you on. Yeah, it's been a yeah, great pleasure, sir. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was great meeting you, Mark. And uh, yeah, thanks, Josh. And uh, what time are we playing tomorrow, man? <laughs> I think it's 7.30 a.m. The game's on. Okay. Yeah. Big game against the Wolves. So if We you, have this. You, me, and the rest of the guys. Yeah. yeah that's right. If you want to actually be able to sleep a little bit and see a good game of, of, of football, you can wait until 10 and see Tottenham. That's all I'm going to say. Ugh. Hey, they're good now. <laughs> I think Tony's response is perfect. Oof. I, I I think this is a tribute to you guys to keep like keep this podcast going despite that difference, right? <laughs> we do our best. <laughs> really appreciate it, Tony. All right, buddy. Take care. Thanks, guys. See you.